Section 13 of Selected Interviews with Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume 1. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Interviewers' Questions, read by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Ingersoll's Responses, read by Edward Kirkby, Warwick, England. Interviewed Title, The Oath Question. Printed in the Secular Review, London, England, 1884. First Question. I suppose that your attention has been called to the excitement in England over the oath question, and you have probably wondered that so much should have been made of so little. Yes, I have read a few articles upon the subject, including one by Cardinal Newman. It is wonderful that so many people imagine that there is something miraculous in the oath. They seem to regard it as a kind of verbal fetish, a charm, an open sesame to be pronounced at the door of truth, a spell, a kind of moral thumbscrew, by means of which falsehood itself is compelled to turn informer. The oath has outlived its brother, the wager of battle. Both were born of the idea that God would interfere for the right and for the truth. Trial by fire and by water had the same origin. It was once believed that the man in the wrong could not kill the man in the right, but experience having shown that he usually did, the belief gradually fell into disrepute. So it was once thought that a perjurer could not swallow a piece of sacramental bread, but the fear that made the swallowing difficult, having passed away, the appeal to the coarsenet was abolished. It was found that a brazen or a desperate man could eat himself out of the greatest difficulty with perfect ease, satisfying the law and his own hunger at the same time. The oath is a relic of barbarous theology, of the belief that a personal God interferes in the affairs of men, that some God protects innocence and guards the right. The experience of the world has sadly demonstrated the folly of that belief. The testimony of a witness ought to be believed, not because it is given under the solemnities of an oath, but because it is reasonable. If unreasonable, it ought to be thrown aside. The question ought not to be, has this been sworn to, but is this true? The moment evidence is tested by the standard of reason, the oath becomes a useless ceremony. Let the man who gives false evidence be punished as the law-making power may prescribe. He should be punished because he commits a crime against society, and he should be punished in this world. All honest men will tell the truth if they can, therefore oaths will have no effect upon them. Dishonest men will not tell the truth, unless the truth happens to suit their purpose, therefore oaths will have no effect upon them. We punish them, not for swearing to a lie, but for telling it and we can make the punishment for telling the falsehood just as severe as we wish. If they are to be punished in another world, the probability is that the punishment there will be for having told the falsehood here. After all, a lie is made no worse by an oath, and the truth is made no better. You object, then, to the oath. Is your objection based on any religious grounds, or on any prejudice against the ceremony because of its religious origin, or what is your objection? I care nothing about the origin of the ceremony. The objection to the oath is this. It furnishes a falsehood with a letter of credit. It supplies the wolf with sheep's clothing, and covers the hands of Jacob with hair. It blows out the light, and in the darkness Leah is taken for Rachel. 
it puts upon each witness a kind of theological gown this gown hides the moral rags of the depraved wretch as well as the virtues of the honest man the oath is a mask that falsehood puts on and for a moment is mistaken for truth it gives to dishonesty the advantage of solemnity the tendency of the oath is to put all testimony on an equality the obscure rascal and the man of sterling character both swear and jurors who attribute a miraculous quality to the oath forget the real difference in the men and give about the same weight to the evidence of each because both were sworn a scoundrel is delighted with the opportunity of going through a ceremony that gives importance and dignity to his story that clothes him for the moment with respectability loans him the appearance of conscience and gives the ring of true coin to the base metal to him the oath is a shield he is in partnership for a moment with god and people who have no confidence in the witness credit the firm of course you know that religionists insist that people are more likely to tell the truth when sworn and that to take away the oath is to destroy the foundation of testimony if the use of the oath is defended on the ground that religious people need a stimulus to tell the truth then i am compelled to say that religious people have been so badly educated that they mistake the nature of the crime they should be taught that to defeat justice by falsehood is the real offence besides fear is not the natural foundation of virtue even with religious people fear cannot always last ananias and sapphira have been dead so long and since their time so many people have sworn falsely without affecting their health that the fear of sudden divine vengeance no longer pales the cheek of the perjurer if the vengeance is not sudden then according to the church the criminal will have plenty of time to repent so that the oath no longer affects even the fearful would it not be better for the church to teach that telling the falsehood is the real crime and that taking the oath neither adds nor takes from its enormity would it not be better to teach that he who does wrong must suffer the consequences whether god forgives him or not he who tries to injure another may or may not succeed but he cannot by any possibility fail to injure himself men should be taught that there is no difference between truth-telling and truth-swearing nothing is more vicious than the idea that any ceremony or form of words hand-lifting or book-kissing can add even in the slightest degree to the perpetual obligation every human being is under to speak the truth the truth plainly told naturally commends itself to the intelligent every fact is a genuine link in the infinite chain and will agree perfectly with every other fact a fact asks to be inspected asks to be understood it needs no oath no ceremony no supernatural aid it is independent of all the gods a falsehood goes in partnership with theology and depends on the partner for success to show how little influence for good has been attributed to the oath it is only necessary to say that for centuries in the christian world no person was allowed to testify who had the slightest pecuniary interest in the result of a suit the expectation of a farthing in this world was supposed to outweigh the fear of god's wrath in the next all the pangs pains and penalties 
of perdition were considered as nothing when compared with pounds shillings and pence in this world you know that in nearly all deliberative bodies in parliaments and congresses an oath or an affirmation is required to support what is called the constitution and that all officers are required to swear or affirm that they will discharge their duties do these oaths and affirmations in your judgment do any good men have sought to make nations and institutions immortal by oaths subjects have sworn to obey kings and kings have sworn to protect subjects and yet the subjects have sometimes beheaded a king and the king has often plundered the subjects the oaths enable them to deceive each other every absurdity in religion and all tyrannical institutions have been patched buttressed and reinforced by oaths and yet the history of the world shows the utter futility of putting in the coffin of an oath the political and religious aspirations of the race revolutions and reformations care little for so help me god oaths have riveted shackles and sanctified abuses people swear to support a constitution and they will keep the oath as long as the constitution supports them in seventeen seventy six the colonists cared nothing for the fact that they had sworn to support the british crown all the oaths to defend the constitution of the united states did not prevent the civil war we have at last learned that states may be kept together for a little time by force permanently only by mutual interest we have found that the delilah of superstition cannot bind with oaths the secular samson why should a member of parliament or of congress swear to maintain the constitution if he is a dishonest man the oath will have no effect if he is an honest patriot it will have no effect in both cases it is equally useless if a member fails to support the constitution the probability is that his constituents will treat him as he does the constitution in this country after all the members of congress have sworn or affirmed to defend the constitution each political party charges the other with a deliberate endeavor to destroy that sacred instrument possibly the political oath was invented to prevent the free and natural development of a nation kings and nobles and priests wished to retain the property they had filched and clutched for that purpose they compelled the real owners to swear that they would support and defend the law under colour of which the theft and robbery had been accomplished so in the church creeds have been protected by oaths priests and laymen solemnly swore that they would under no circumstances resort to reason that they would overcome facts by faith and strike down demonstrations with the sword of the spirit professors of the theological seminary at andover massachusetts swear to defend certain dogmas and to attack others they swear sacredly to keep and guard the ignorance they have with them philosophy leads to perjury and reason is the road to crime while theological professors are not likely to make an intellectual discovery still it is unwise by taking an oath to render that certain which is only improbable if all witnesses sworn to tell the truth did so if all the members of parliament and of congress in taking the oath became intelligent patriotic and honest i should be in favour of retaining the ceremony 
but we find that men who have taken the same oath advocate opposite ideas and entertain different opinions as to the meaning of the constitutions and laws the oath adds nothing to their intelligence does not even tend to increase their patriotism and certainly does not make the dishonest honest are not persons allowed to testify in the united states whether they believe in future rewards and punishments or not in this country in most of the states witnesses are allowed to testify whether they believe in perdition and paradise or not in some states they are allowed to testify even if they deny the existence of god we have found that religious belief does not compel people to tell the truth and then an utter denial of every christian creed does not even tend to make them dishonest you see a religious belief does not affect the senses justice should not shut any door that leads to truth no one will pretend that because you do not believe in hell your sight is impaired or your hearing dulled or your memory rendered less retentive a witness in a court is called upon to tell what he has seen what he has heard what he remembers not what he believes about gods and devils and hells and heavens a witness substantiates not a faith but a fact in order to ascertain whether a witness will tell the truth you might with equal propriety examine him as to his ideas about music painting or architecture as theology a man may have no ear for music and yet remember what he hears he may care nothing about painting and yet is able to tell what he sees so he may deny every creed and yet be able to tell the facts as he remembers them thomas jefferson was wise enough so to frame the constitution of virginia that no person could be deprived of any civil right on account of his religious or irreligious belief through the influence of men like Paine, Franklin, and Jefferson, it was provided in the Federal Constitution that officers elected under its authority could swear or affirm. This was the natural result of the separation of church and state. I see that your presidents and governors issue their proclamations calling on the people to assemble in their churches and offer thanks to God. How does this happen in a government where church and state are not united? Jefferson, when president, refused to issue what is known as the Thanksgiving Proclamation on the ground that the federal government had no right to interfere in religious matters, that the people owed no religious duties to the government that the government derived its powers not from priests or gods but from the people and was responsible alone to the source of its power the truth is the framers of our constitution intended that the government should be secular in the broadest and best sense and yet there are thousands and thousands of religious people in this country who are greatly scandalized because there is no recognition of god in the federal constitution and for several years a great many ministers have been endeavouring to have the constitution amended so as to recognise the existence of god and the divinity of christ a man by the name of pollock was once superintendent of the mint of philadelphia he was almost insane about having god in the constitution failing in that he got the inscription on our money in god we trust 
as our silver dollar is now in fact worth only eighty-five cents it is claimed that the inscription means that we trust in god for the other fifteen cents there is a constant effort on the part of many christians to have their religion in some way recognized by law proclamations are now issued calling upon the people to give thanks and directing attention to the fact that while god has scourged or neglected other nations he has been remarkably attentive to the wants and wishes of the united states governors of states issue these documents written in a tone of pious insincerity the year may or may not have been prosperous yet the degree of thankfulness called for is always precisely the same a few years ago the governor of iowa issued an exceedingly rhetorical proclamation in which the people were requested to thank god for the unparalleled blessings he had showered upon them a private citizen fearing that the lord might be misled by the official correspondence issued his proclamation in which he recounted with great particularity the hardships of the preceding year he insisted that the weather had been of the poorest quality that the spring came late and the frost early that the people were in debt that the farms were mortgaged that the merchants were bankrupt and that everything was in the worst possible condition he concluded by sincerely hoping that the lord would pay no attention to the proclamation of the governor but would if he had any doubt on the subject come down and examine the state for himself these proclamations have always appeared to me absurdly egotistical why should god treat us any better than he does the rest of his children why should he send pestilence and famine to china and health and plenty to us why give us corn and egypt cholera all these proclamations grow out of egotism and selfishness of ignorance and superstition and are based upon the idea that god is a capricious monster that he loves flattery that he can be coaxed and cajoled the conclusion of the whole matter with me is this for truth in courts we must depend upon the trained intelligence of judges the right of cross-examination the honesty and common sense of jurors and upon an enlightened public opinion as for members of congress we will trust to the wisdom and patriotism not only of the members but of their constituents in religion we will give to all the luxury of absolute liberty the alchemist did not succeed in finding any stone the touch of which transmuted baser things to gold and priests have not invented yet an oath with power to force from falsehood's desperate lips the pearl of truth end of the oath question